Good day. I have a strange message I want to share with you this morning. Perhaps it's not for you. Perhaps it's just for me. But I've been on a journey for about the last three months. I started like this. My wife Mary has been uh, taking her class, Sunday morning class, through an in-depth study of the book of Ephesians for about the last 12 months. And so it's not unusual for her to talk to me about some of the things that she's seeing and sensing from that book late in the week, sometimes on a Thursday or a Friday, or sometimes even a Saturday afternoon. About three months ago, she made a statement which piqued my imagination. So I thought, I'm going to read that book again. The book, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. I'm going to read it again. So on Monday morning, which is common for my wife, she goes out with a friend and does some grocery shopping then have lunch, and then she comes home. So, seeing that the house is empty except for, for the dog and yours truly, I sat down on my computer and began to read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, years ago, it would be no problem because of a speed reader. But since I had surgery in my eye, I can no longer read, so I've got to do it the laborious way, reading about 350 words a minute, just to try to get through the thing, you know. It, it really is a chore to read that way. But I began to read. So I read, that, read Paul's letter once. Then I read it twice. Then I read it three times. Then I read it four times. Then I read it five times. And by this time, Mary had come back from a shopping expedition, so we had a typical cup of tea and uh, had a sandwich. Then I went back to my little office to read it again. Because I found there was something taking place in my mind as I read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, I'd read it many, many times before, but there was something about the rhythm of reading it through many, many times which really got moving in my heart and in my spirit. And the problem was the transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul begins to lift the mind and the soul of his readers to high places. And then when he turns to what we call chapter 2, it's as though he drops you back to the floor. Boom! He concludes chapter 1, having spoken so eloquently and excellently by making a prayer. 
And he concludes his prayer speaking of Jesus, who is the head of the church, the fullness of whom, who filleth all in all. He doesn't say amen. He just changed the talk. And he goes from his prayer and simply says, and you, hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. There was something about that because the words quickened are not in the original text. And so he goes from the fullness that filleth all in all to, and you, who were dead in trespasses and sins. But in times past, you walked according to the lust of, the, of this world, the spirit of the powers of the air that worketh in the hearts of the children of disobedience. I thought, good grief. How can you go from the heights of splendor to almost down in the pit? That bugged me. And so on. I read it again. And I read the first two chapters again. So altogether, I'd read the first two chapters about 10 times that day. And I came to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that the reason for that editorial insertion by the earlier translators, the later translators have corrected the text, that the reason that they inserted it, both in the King James, the New King James, the American Standard and other versions. The reason why they inserted it was because they were trying to soften the transition as Paul is taken to the heights and then brought us back to the reality of what we once were. Because he makes a statement, speaking to the Gentiles, and you were dead in trespass and sins. And he walked according to the lust of the flesh, the spirit of disobedience, which is now in the children of uh, disobedience. Then he includes the, the Jews. And we also, and there he identified them as becoming children of wrath. So I came to the conclusion, the reason for Paul doing this was to soften the transition from the heights to bring it back to reality. So that was the end. As far as I was concerned, I was through with Ephesians. We had dinner that night, did a typical thing, watch the news, then that very, very intellectual game, The Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> then we watched Rabbi Zacharias on TV, and after a while, it was time to go to bed. So we, we did our evening prayers, and we went to bed. I'm a strange sleep habit. I'm uh, one of those kind of guys that's Dozy for a couple of hours, wakes up. Dozy for a couple of hours, wakes up. Dozy for a couple of hours, wakes up. And so that's been my partner all my life. And I don't think I'm going to change 
now that I've reached the age of 200 years of age. <laughs> so, I'm through with Ephesians. That's gone. I fall asleep, I wake up, and the words quickened and made alive, a bouncing in my head. Because though those words are not written in verse 1, they're not part of the text of verse 1, they're more certainly part of the context, as evidence in verse 5. And so I've got these words bouncing through my head. After a while, I get tired, I go back to sleep. Wake up again, a while later, these words still bouncing in my head. So I thought, Lord, are you trying to talk to me? Because if you are, you're going to have to reveal what you're wanting me to know and wanting me to hear and understand. And I promptly fell asleep. So obviously that was, uh, there was nothing significant about those words. Except I woke up in the morning. Now Tuesday morning. The words still bouncing around in my head. So I thought, all right, perhaps I'd better study them. And so I determined that after Bible study that morning and having lunch with some friends, I'd go and go back and take a study of those words. So in the afternoon, I returned to the book of Ephesians. And I decided to look at those words in the rabbinic template. I'd already noted them in the literal form, quickened or made alive. Then the second rabbinic template is, what is it, Michael? Remets, which is to hint. So I began to see, well, what hints am I getting from these two words? In verse 5, the obvious hint is, he speaks of us being made alive in in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ being made alive. So that's interesting. So our redemptive experience is similar to that which is the resurrection of Jesus. That makes redemption much more significant and dynamic than just joining a church. So then the second, the third level is to rush, which is to compare it with other terms. So I thought, okay. Seeing that the Lord Jesus, is, seeing that Paul has linked the term with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus or at the lives of people who've been raised from the dead. So I thought, okay, I can do that. So I begin to read because we know there are three people that Jesus raised from the dead. Am I boring you yet? Yeah. Give me a few more minutes, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll get to the boring part. So I read in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus just going from place to place and he comes across a, a funeral. He stopped the funeral, tells the young guy, Get up. The young guy gets up. He begins to talk. And he 
gives him to his widowed mama. That's interesting, I think. Then I turn to the next chapter, Luke. And it's the raising of the daughter of Jairus, remember? He walks in the room, takes her by the hand, talks to her. I say to your little girl, get up. She gets up, and he takes her, gives her to them, and says, feed her. I thought, that's interesting. Because it seems to me that that is what Jesus is still doing. He raises people from the dead, which we call the salvific expression, and then he gives them to someone, particularly the church, to nurture them, to take care of them, and to build them up in the faith. That, that's nice, that's interesting. Then I turn to John 11. You know the story, it's the raising of Lazarus. Jesus gives three commands. The first command was very, very simple. He said, roll the stone away. He didn't need them to roll the stone away. All he could have said was, and the thing would have rolled back to Damascus. <laughs> but he said, I want you to roll the stone away. Then he said, Lazarus, come out. I said, Lazarus came out, limping out, bound with cloths, burial cloths. Then he said to them, whoever the them were, Loose him and let him go. Now, that was the second shock for that group that afternoon. The fact that Lazarus came out from the tomb was an amazing thing for them. But when he said, loose him and let him go. Huh? You see, the Jews were bound by a legal and a liturgical expression from Torah. The Pharisees had developed a rabbinic philosophy. They'd taken the 10 words and made them 613. And those 613 precepts had sub-precepts, which gave a volume of ideas. They had rules and regulations for everything, except Lucim and let him go. No robber had ever thought that they would ever need to lose him and let a guy go because those kind of things are, not, are just not done. Where do you start? For John to be specific is simply saying that he, had, he was bound in his head He's bound in his hands. He's bound in his feet. Loose him and let him go. Then my mind went back. Okay. When he raised the young man, he put him in the charge of his mama. When he raised the little girl, 
he handed her to them to feed and to nourish. Is it possible that the loosing and letting go is also part of the mandate which is given to the church? That we have the responsibility that people who have been, who've come alive in Jesus to be loosed and let go. Now, if that's true, how do we do it? So I read the book of Ephesians again. And then it dawned on me. That's one of the minor reasons, <clears throat> pardon me, why the Apostle Paul wrote his letter, what we call the encyclical to the Ephesians, is because it's the protocol, it's the manual given by the Lord to the church how to loose people and let them go. I came to the conclusion that this is part of the mandate given to the church because for 90 years, I watched it take place here in Bethesda in a ministry called Teen Challenge. Young ladies have come in and I've watched them being loosed and let go. Now, it hasn't always happened because some came in and they didn't become alive. Only Jesus can make a person alive. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if the work of the Holy Spirit does not bring it to life, well, then the rest doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many rules. It doesn't matter how many regulations you give. All you do is make them religious. So I said, Lord, if Ephesians is a manual on how to lose people and let them go, please give me insight to it. I'd not read in the book, I'd not heard it spoken. It's something that's perked in my head. And for this reason, you pastors and you people, you spiritual leaders, need to put up your antenna to check the veracity, the authenticity of what I'm about to say. I looked, I said, Lord, so then where do we start? If they've come in with bonds around the head, bonds around the heart, and bonds around the feet, where do we start? Because John doesn't tell us where they started. He just said, loose them and let them go. And that's it. So I turned back to Ephesians. I'm tired of Ephesians by now. <laughs> 
But it's obvious. Paul started with the head. You might say, now, why would you start with the head? Well, listen to the way I want to paraphrase chapter 2, verse 1. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and were brainwashed by society, and blitzkrieged by the satanic powers, so that you became children of rebellion. Brainwashed by society. So what? Look it up. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1, page 658. I'm talking to my friend. <laughs> I'm ragging you, my brother, because of the tension that I feel in my own life. He starts the head. Because we've been brainwashed, look how Paul opens up chapter 1. He simply says, I want you to know you're blessed. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That's okay. Yeah, we know we are blessed. But then Paul goes on to document six particular facets of that blessing. It's what Stephen calls transformational and power terms. And the first one happens to be, you are chosen. Oh, big deal. Oh, yes, it is a big deal. Every graduating university student who has succeeded in athletics, in athletics knows exactly what chosen means. When he graduated from high school, he made the choice or she made the choice what school she wanted to go to. But now that they graduated from university, others make the choice from them. It's called the draft. I read the story of a young man who was scheduled to be picked in the top seven in the draft. But then something came out about it an aberrated behavior pattern. And he said, this may affect his selection process. And it did. He wasn't selected the first round, the second round, the third round, the fourth round, the fifth round, the sixth round. In fact, instead of being chosen in the first seven picks, he was chosen in the last four picks of the last round. When asked, he said, well, I guess I ought to be thankful that I'm chosen. Chosen. No, says society. I teach our kids, you were just an accidental amalgamation of atoms. The kids said, wow. 
I guess that means to say, I'm just a bag of bits and pieces. Paul says, you're chosen. But he goes further. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Big deal. Yes, indeed, it's a very, very big deal. Because, friend, when Paul says that we were, the, we who were made alive were chosen before there was time or matter, he's making an incredibly significant expression. In fact, it's so significant, there's only one other thing that we know about from that pre-time era. Not only in that era were we chosen, but it was in that era that it said that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, why are those two things put together? We chose him before time, and Jesus dies before time. And the answer is kind of elementary. It happened like this. You see, God, in choosing us, says that we are significant. Society says no. Society says that living is not equivalent to meaning. Paul says, chosen. Society says, no. Being does not mean significance. Paul says, chosen. But what does that mean? Well, look at what Moses says in the opening chapter of Genesis chapter 1. He opens up by some saying, Bereshit bara Elohim we'et hashemaim ehararetz. In the beginning, God created. Five times that chapter, he used the term created. First time has to do with the making of the heavens and the earth. Three times it's used for the making and the development of humanity. Moses said, and God said, let us make man your own. And so in the image of God created he him. In the image of God created he them. He created them male and female three times. He underscores the significance of humanity by the wonderful term chosen. But then when you link that with what Jesus did, you begin to get the understanding of the significance of the work and ministry of Jesus on the cross. It's a threefold aspect. We, often, we always talk of the redemptive aspect he paid the price in full. We don't often talk about the, the revitalization aspect in which we become alive. We don't just join the church. We don't just join Christianity. We are born into it. 
We become alive. We become something brand new. But then there's a third aspect. Not only redemption, not only revitalization, but also there's restoration. Restoration of what? Restoration of the image in which we were originally made, but because of sin and because of the decadence of sin, that image slowly began to fade. But when you come back to Jesus Christ and you're born of the Holy Spirit, that image begins to manifest itself once again. That's why John can say, now are we the children of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Chosen! Chosen for what? That we might live a life which is different. That's the first unwrapping of the head. Instead of being brainwashed by society as being nothing, as being nothing more than a mutation of molecular mush. Or that we are the fungi that grows the primordial muck. Chosen, made alive by the grace of God. But then he goes on to give the second term. He says, predestined. Oh, that's a lovely word. Theologians choke over the word predestined. In fact, there are three groups that choke over things. Mathematicians, philosophers, and theologians. All three have the capacity to swallow camels and choke over gnats. <laughs> and this is one of them. Paul says, you are predestined. If chosen gives us, gives us dignity, predestination gives us destiny. Because Paul goes on to say that we've been predestined to become children of God, adopted into his family that we Gentiles who are nothing, viewed as dogs by the Jews, have become someone because we are children of God. John dares with Jesus Christ. But not only has he put destiny in us, he's put destiny in front of us. One of the leading theologians of the, of the last decade took his wife and went with a group of friends on a cruise in the Mediterranean, which ended in, in Greece. And so having gone around the, the sites of Athens, they turned to go to the airport to visit one other city before returning to Boston. And so... He's at the airport and they've gone through the, 
the routine, the protocol to get ready to get on the plane. He's sitting down and he goes to his briefcase to get a book. He looks and he sees a sign. Prorizzo Roma. Prorizzo Roma. And he begins to chuckle. And he's really having a, a, almost a belly laugh. So thank God for wives. She came to his defense and said, you know, my husband's been under so much stress and so much strain. So that this has been a time of relaxation for him. And so this is why you, you can tell he's relaxed. And the guy is bigly. And he looks. Their friends agreed with her. It's nice to relax. And it's nice to see even stiff people relax from time to time. He said, uh, no, I'm not laughing because I'm relaxing. I'm laughing because of revelation. He said, look at that sign. Well, they looked at the sign and said, uh huh? It says Rome. He said, yeah. But look at the word prior to it. Because it's the word predestination. He said, when we get on board that plane, we're not just going for a ride, <coughs> we're not just going to go around in circles, we are going to go somewhere. And we are going to Rome. And he said, and that is the truth. He said, in Jesus, we have been predestined not just to be a member of his family, but we are predestined to go somewhere. Jesus said it this way. I go to prepare a place for you. <clears throat> And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We're going somewhere. It's the second unwrapping of the bandage of the head. My time is almost gone. So let me go to the unwrapping around the hands. No. Let me go back to the head one more time. Because when you're talking about the mind, you're not only talking about the conscious, the subconscious, and in the, in the conscious you've got the intellectual, you also have the emotional. And Paul deals with the emotional aspect. He speaks of, we have peace. I don't have time to talk about that. The three aspects of peace. He also talks of, a friend of a friend of mine had gone on an expedition looking for Noah's Ark. They'd gone many times to Turkey. He said, no, this is not the place. He said, because the scripture says, 
They came down from RRT to the plain, and then they came from the east and came to the land of China, which is Iraq. So if they came from the east to Iraq, it can't be Turkey because Turkey is north. So it has to be to go east and then perhaps go northeast. So they had gone looking at RRT, the eastern part of RRT, which is just north of Iran. The exhibition was over. The, it was over. They'd come back to camp, base camp. They were going to have a feast. And so people were preparing the feast at this great big bonfire. And this friend of a friend was sitting there looking at the bonfire. And through the bonfire, it was a beautiful moonlit night. You could see the contour of RRT in the distance. You've got to think, you know, we could be very close to the place where Noah built an altar. A place where Noah received the promise. He began to ponder. He looked through the, the flame of the bonfire further and saw the people busy preparing the feast of exotic foods was a common to that area. And he saw in the distance the men preparing the meat, roast meat for the meal. The roast that night was lamb. And suddenly something hit him. He began to tremble. Oh, all the other guys were around. They, they were busy comparing notes and busy comparing digital photographs. Nobody's paying any attention to what has taken place to RC. But one of his close associates noted. He came over and said, Are you okay? RC got up and rushed to his tent. And having gotten to his tent, he lay on a sleeping bag and his friend followed and said, what's wrong? Are you suffering from altitude fever? He said, no. Sobbing. What's wrong? Are you disappointed with the expedition? He said, because everybody else is excited. He said, no. So what's wrong? He said, while well, I sat there and thought the promise that God gave to Noah. He said, then I looked through the flame. I saw the men preparing the meal, a lamb. So it suddenly dawned upon me, the love of God is greater far than tell a man can ever tell. And he began to sob. The guy looked at him and said, I see, 
you're receiving an epiphany. You're not having just an intellectual assent of what Christianity is all about. You are experiencing the dynamic and the life of it. It's gone from there to here, even as it has to go from here to here. Both men sobbed together. Then I remembered. For Paul prays another prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Having spoken in chapter 1 that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know. Now he comes to chapter 3, that you might understand the length and the breadth, the height and the depth of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And I began to have that same kind of sensation. Oh, the love, the true salvation's plan. Oh, the God, the God despair Calvary. Mercy that was great and grace of free. It was the unwrapping of the bandage, not only of the head, it's not only the protocol, it's the experience for each individual. It's a touch of intellect and it's to touch of emotions. I have to close. But not only the unwrapping of the head, John speaks of the hands, the unwrapping of the hands. Now we know very, very well the hands are the instrument, firstly of work. I don't like that word. I'm allergic to work. <laughs> but not only are hands the instrument for work, it's also the instrument for warfare. And Paul speaks of work. He also speaks of warfare. He says, pick up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. But I want to close not by talking of, of how we walk or how we work and how we walk. I want to talk of hands in the context of worship. You see, Hands are very, very expressive. In fact, it is said, when speaking of the beautiful Jewish people, if they tie up their hands, they can't talk. <laughs> because they have to use their hands every time they talk. And there are five distinct uses of our hands when it comes to worship. We know the first one, it's very, very easy. We are creatures of rhythm. Our heart has a rhythmic beat to it. The electronic pulse of the brain has a, a rhythm to it. We are creatures of rhythm. In fact, when you sit in the back of the congregation and uh, the worship is going on, you'd be amazed the way the people react. Some have a wiggle. Keep wiggle, really is keep wiggle. 
others doing this. Others just clap. Now we often use the term clapping just to applause. But clapping is also an indication of worship. It shows appreciation that in the language, clap your hands, O ye people. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. It's an indication that the Lord has done great things for me, whereof I am glad, and I applaud him. But not just clap. Hands are also used when it comes in worship. The psalmist said, exalt the Lord your God. When rabbis want to exalt the Lord, they do this. Now, sports people have, have copied the Jewish attitude. When they do this, it says, lift the roof. Make noise, make noise. When rabbis do it, it's this, I'm lifting up the Lord. I'm exalting him. Now, we know you can't lift him any higher than he is because he's already highly exalted. But what we do is we're lifting him before our eyes and in our mind that he is exalted and high. Blessed be his holy name. Then, there's another disposition. When the Jews come before the Lord, they cup their hands together. It's the time in which they're making a request. Lord, I need help. For some it may be, I need a gift of healing. For others, it may mean I need a financial breakthrough. For some it might mean I need a word of wisdom because I'm at a stalemate. I don't know what to do. Lord, hear my cry. Drop it into my hands, I pray. Drop it into my hands. Let me give you one more close. I'm sorry, I've just gone past 12. Excuse me. There's one more. This. When the rabbis pray like this, you know what it means. Every parent in the house understands this. You take your little child for a walk, and after they've walked about 40 yards, which has been their idea to go for a long walk, they start tugging at your pants. I'm tired of walking, lift me up. It happens when you take a child into a busy mall and all they can see from their level are skirts, shoes, and slacks. And they pull, lift me up. I want to see above the mass. I want to see Above that, which is dominating the whole, lift me up. Please, Lord, lift me up. 
in Welsh. In the Welsh language, they have a quaint little word. And the little word is cooch. It's a term which is used usually by little boys that when they find themselves in a situation in which they're uncomfortable, usually at night, perhaps there's been a storm, or perhaps they've had a strange little dream, and it's unsettled them. They come out from the room, they go to Mama, start calling Mama. Mama, I want a coach. Mama throws off the clothes, picks up the kid because for some people they say it's just a hug. No, it's more than a hug. It's more than a cuddle. Cooch. Mother would just draw the little boy, then put one hand, one arm underneath his head, pull the clothes over, wrap the arm around the little fellow, and I hold him tightly. It's not long before the little fellow is fast asleep. You know, as I look over this beautiful congregation, I know there are people here this morning, you have your hands cut like this. I need something from you, Lord Jesus. I also am aware that there are other folk in the congregation this morning. You've gone through a rough time. And though you wouldn't use the words normally because it's not a theological term, it's not a Texas term, but you're simply saying, Lord, I need a coach. I want you to hold me till the storm passes by. Now I know that for some of you this morning, because you're not alive in Jesus, because you're just a normal, much of what I've said does not make sense to you. But for those who are alive in Jesus, you know the process. It's the unwrapping of your mind, the unwrapping of your hands for worship, the unwrapping of your feet to walk. Lord Jesus, Whatever we stand in need of this morning, whether it's a gift from you or whether it's just a coach, let it be in Jesus' name.